Good morning. I greet you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I bring you greetings on behalf of your brothers and sisters in the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta. 56,000 men, women, children, teenagers, and feisty seniors. Worshipping in 109 congregations, locations all over Middle and North Georgia. 109 locations, one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's delightful to be back here again at All Saints. There's a wonderful thing happening here. Thanks be to God for all your wonderful work in partnering with the Spirit to bring about a vibrant community. Well done. Well done. Let's get right to it, shall we? First things first, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> happy Mother's Day. And if you will indulge me, let's, let's do something together here. Let's create a moment together. Are there any great-grandmothers or great-great-grandmothers here? If you are, simply raise a hand and let us acknowledge you. I see a few hands. Congratulations to you. Shall we continue? Any grandmothers present? Raise your hand. You will know them by their broad smile. Well done, well done, well done. The church is populated no matter the denomination because of faithful grandmas. Grandmas are our best evangelism. To my sisters still in the struggle. Where are all the mothers at? Where are you? I've seen your job. I don't want it. But be encouraged. Be encouraged. And you don't have to indicate on this last category, but I need to say this. Are there any mothers here who have adopted or foster children like my mother? who had enough mother in them that they could extend it to children, not their own biological issue. If you are here, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Incidentally, that is a commercial for adoption. And like me, if you know that your mother lives now with God, but nevertheless continues to be close, looking down on you from heaven's balcony, then we remember her. Not perfect, but she did the best she could. And we bless her memory and thank God for her. She did the best she could. For some of us, a simple Mother's Day gift might be just to forgive mom. Just to forgive her and say, Thank you. Now we get to it, shall we? We're here for confirmation, reaffirmation, and reception. Have I got that right? Yes, all right, I've got that right. So, confirmation. Confirmation simply is a mature and public profession of partnership with God in Jesus Christ. That's all it is. In front of God and everybody, you deign, dare to stand up and say, I will follow. Wow. Wonderful. For those of you being received, coming from some other tradition other than the Episcopal Church, to you I simply say this, welcome home. <laughs> welcome home. 
I know something about that. I know something about the circuitous journey. I know about thinking and praying and wondering and speaking and trying and trying again, experimenting and then finding home. Home right here in this church, in this place, in this tradition, with these people. With this way to talk about God. Welcome home. For those of you being reaffirmed, how glorious is that? You stand up, having been a child perhaps of this tradition, and you stand up to say, there is something happening in me that I don't have all the words for, but yet I want to formalize it. Yet I want to say out loud that this thing that is happening to me is wonderful, and I need to share it. I've got to tell somebody else. Congratulations to you. You're in the right place. Uh, Peter Rollins, a wonderful theologian, said this. He said, God is an event, not a fact to be grasped, but an incoming to be undergone. And that's what we're doing here today. We're simply responding, all of us, and so don't you dare let them have all the fun this morning. No, before this liturgy is over, I wonder what piece you will pull out for yourself. And when was the last time you said yes again to God? Because that's what they're doing. They're simply symbols for us, reminders that this God is ever fluid, ever wildly active, reaching out to all of us down into our real life with all the blessing and all the blemish that we represent. And so don't you leave here today without simply grabbing a piece for yourself afresh, partnering with God anew. We can do it. It's decent and in order, I promise. It's in the prayer book somewhere. I'm sure it is. But it, it moves this assembly from being something polite to something rich and powerful. And that's what it was intended to be. If you will look in the preface to your prayer book, it simply says that all of this, all of this, the singing and the preaching and the praying and the liturgy, the communion, the communion taking, it's all about the exciting of piety. And this is what we need. This is what we need. We have a glorious and rich tradition. Now is the time for us to stand in it with two feet. Now is the time to increase the celebrity of Jesus Christ wherever we find ourselves. Which brings us to the second chapter of the book of Acts. I would have you to know it is not the thoughts of the apostles. It is the acts of the apostles. There's an invitation here. And Peter it's at the end of Peter's sermon that we hear him say these last five verses in the second chapter of Acts. You remember Peter, don't you? Peter who struggled with being impetuous. Peter who failed and Peter who succeeded. Peter, the only apostle who knew briefly at least what it was like to walk on the water at the behest of Christ. Peter who struggled with duplicity. Peter who struggled with cowardice. That is the very same Peter that Christ goes to in his risen form, to reconcile him, to bring him close. And we know something of what it means to be Peter, do we not? Or perhaps I'm the only one. Perhaps I'm the only one who knows what it means to be met by something that you did not gin up of your own imagination, that comes to you and tells you, son or daughter, you are forgiven. This same risen Lord that allows us to look in the mirror, knowing where we've been, knowing what we've done, and allows us to see ourselves as forgiven and restored, as whole. Peter has that experience. He's been reconciled now. And who better to preach 
resurrection to the community than the one who has failed miserably, but is now empowered by one thing, the most durable power in the universe, love. And he stands and he preaches, boy, I mean, you ought to read this thing. He tells them what for, boys and girls. He tells them. And at the end of that, here's what he says. And they devoted themselves. Devoted. Not simply decorated a little bit of their life. But they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the fellowship. The breaking of the bread and the prayers. Right from the beginning, we were imagined as a community of dynamism and vibrancy. How dare we allow people to call us the frozen chosen? That is not who we are. I mean, we we may say that to placate other people's criticism, but that is exactly not who we are. We are the people who possess a treasure that is not of our own making, that wants and begs to radiate out from wherever we are. That is who we are. We are the difference makers because a difference has been made in us. That is who we are. That we have experienced this God come down deep in our souls and touched us in places some of us never knew ever existed. The one who found his finger on our stuff, I mean, our real stuff, and didn't kick us to the side, didn't diminish us, didn't disparage us, did not condemn us, but called us. John 10, so important. He calls us each by his name, by our names. And how so? In a love-soaked voice. Come, son. Come, daughter. Away from death into life. That's who we are. That is who we are. And there is a window of time. If my intuition, if the Spirit is speaking to me and I'm hearing correctly, there is a window of time created right now. We're seeing this in the Catholic Church with Francis. People are receptive now if you and I will go back to the fundamentals of our tradition, the fingernail dirty work of what it means to be Christians. The service, the generosity, the inclusion, the finding our voice in the real world about the things that are going wrong. I find it interesting in Georgia that we can allow for guns everywhere, but can't allow for Medicaid everywhere. I find it... Now is the time for you and I to teach, not just the bishop, not just Jeffrey, but you and I, all of us are baptized. All of us have been called into this morning and given the ability to speak in our own way, in our own idiom, with our good humor, but nevertheless forthright, clear and clean. You and I are called to speak up now. The apostles teaching. I got myself in trouble a little bit with a a local pastor. We got to talking about this whole notion of guns and so on and This pastor's theology was this, that it's okay to take a life to create life. Now, while that may be just war theory, that is not what Jesus said about himself. He said, I come to give myself that you might have life and life more abundant. The Christian is not the one who is obsessed with self-protection. Quite the opposite. The gospel is crystal clear when it says, I send you out as sheep among the wolves. Take up the sword and die by the sword. But follow me into abundance. Follow me into life. Every time we've done this throughout the trajectory of history in the Christian church, we have changed things. We have made a difference. 
finding something worthy of giving our lives to, we have changed the landscape every time. And the window's open now. The door's open now. Speaking of doors, my kids are here, and we have a dog. And that dog's name is Georgia. I'm not trying to say anything by that, but the dog's name is Georgia. No pun there, just it worked. When it was cold outside, uh, and we have a fenced-in backyard, Georgia would make herself known as to wanting to relieve herself. And so we would do what is appropriate. We would open the door and allow Georgia out. Georgia would take care of her inner dog, and with the door closed, pay attention, with her nails, she would scratch on the glass. She would scratch on the glass and make herself known to us. And my wife, who's quite a theologian in her own right, said, you know, that's just like God. Scratching at the door, wanting to get in. And so what about you? What is scratching at your door, the door of your soul? I mean, we've been in church many a year. I've been in here five decades myself. But we're ever learning. The promise is always evolving. What's scratching at your door? Think about that this week. And that moves us to the fellowship. What's bubbling up in me is how important this gathering is. This fellowship that we know, not because we believe the same things, not because we hold the same understanding of the Second Amendment. This fellowship is a gift because Jesus said, if you lift me up, I will draw all kinds to myself. And this is the family he always had in mind, diverse, diverse educationally, socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, in terms of orientation, diversity that we could not begin to measure right now. He always had this in mind. And don't you see the power in that? Because left to our own devices, we would shrink the world and have a one-dimensional church. But no, he's forcing us, inviting us, pulling us, compelling us to have family in its broadest sense. The world needs that. The world needs that. And so we break bread when we gather. And don't you see the profundity of that? A common meal, the intimacy of having a meal with people who are now family. And isn't it powerful to go to the altar rail and stand beside someone or kneel beside someone shoulder to shoulder and look to your right and look to your left and say, me too. You too, you're insufficient also. You've messed things up also. You're incomplete. You don't have all the power that you need also. Wow. And how powerful is that? That we come to a place and there's a vulnerability here and we stand in that vulnerability, made strong exactly in our weakness, not because of the painted on smiles or the vitae we present to the world, but because we are loved and radically so. And beg now to go and mirror that wherever we've been planted, wherever we are, to mirror that radical, broad border, love and acceptance. What a gift. And then we move to the prayers, this last bit. And so we are a connected community. We are a connected. Our souls need the stirring of the Holy Spirit that comes to us in the silence and in the prayers said out loud. One man has said, you know, in modern parlance, when we talk about soul, we're only talking about the ego in drag. I think he's wrong. I think I've met people from across the world who don't have faith expressions at all and who have faith expressions that are different from mine. And one thing we're sure of, that there is some part of us that is inexplicable, but nevertheless real. 
And there is some commonality to this human experience, some reality that binds us together. It's a soul. And we have it. And we can connect with others. And what a glorious gift that is. We pray for ourselves, but we pray also for the world. I'm glad to be an Episcopalian. How about you? I think we've got at least this much right. That in our service, when we gather together, we read four pieces of the Bible every time. How dare you let other people tell you that Episcopalians don't take the Bible seriously. Every time we gather, we read four pieces of the Bible. And then the homily, well, on most days, it's eight to 12 minutes. Not today, but that's all right. (laughs) But no matter the preacher's erudition, no matter the preacher's eloquence, he or she, the preacher in the Episcopal Church never gets the last word. The upper room gets the last word. What he said on that night, his sacrifice, his mandate to us to serve, that gets the last word every time we gather. And then all of that then is focused back outside the door because that's where the sanctuary is. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Yes, can God make an altar in the wilderness? Absolutely. But are we to so fastidiously sort of surround the altar? Always no. The altar is to empower, to change the world. Peter got that. Peter got that not in his perfect thinking or perfect life, manicured this or that, no. He got that because he had done exactly the opposite. He had failed and been reconciled, called into this great something that you and I share. Which brings me to the end. And I'm thinking here about how Merle Evers tried to articulate this thing. Coming from her blood-soaked history in the American South, When given the chance, the microphone, to address the soul of the nation at President Obama's second inauguration, here's what she said. Could have said anything. Said this. There's something within me that banishes the pain. There's something within me that holds the rain. There's something within me I just can't explain. But thank God Almighty, there's something within me. Centuries ago, a Muslim tried to articulate the very same thing. His name is Rumi. And he said this, I was dead, then I was alive. I was weeping, then laughing. Something came into me. Love came into me, he says, and I became fierce like a lion, but gentle like an evening star. But let the old Anglican have the last word. And this is what Wesley said on his sickbed, fighting disappointment, fighting despair, trying to beat away the cynicism. The words wouldn't come. And then in a moment, they came. The thing came that we're trying to articulate, that we've come to acknowledge together. The thing came. And here's what it said. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glory of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. Today, we celebrate that we are, by virtue of his love to us, a triumph of his grace. Thanks be to God.